0: The Sovereign Lord is my strength. What a great declaration. What a great declaration of dependence in all the right senses. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. That's the way the NIV translates Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 19. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. The fact that there is a Lord who is Lord of Lords, that there is a sovereign who is sovereign over all other sovereigns or King of Kings is a grand, grand reality. And yet to think that he is our strength, what a great declaration. Christians usually do love the sovereignty of God. Sadly, not all Christians do, but I think all Christians should. It makes perfect sense to me why someone who is not a Christian, not a believer in Christ, doesn't like the sovereignty of God. They don't like the fact that He's Lord of Lords, that He is King over all. He is the righteous judge. It means you're in trouble. You do not want God to be sovereign if you have to deal with your sins. But if you have trusted in Christ and according to the mercy of God been forgiven. The sovereign Lord is your strength. It's what gets you through the day. It's what gets you through the ups and downs. It's what helps you with your anxieties. The sovereign Lord is my strength. What an Awesome declaration we are talking about the sovereignty of God. Uh, we're doing a mini series if you will on the sovereignty of God We'll return to our study of the gospel according to Matthew in a couple of weeks Lord willing uh, I wasn't sure I was going to preach on the sovereignty of God today uh, because only God is sovereign so I've been planning to preach on the sovereignty of God today and once I started preaching the first hour I thought I'm doing it God is sovereignly having me do this, uh, and so I plan to do the same sermon next hour, but I'll have to say, if the Lord wills, uh, you see where I'm going with all of this. Next week, I think we'll finish up this series on the sovereignty of God, um, and so hopefully we'll have that opportunity. But last week, what we did was we did what I called a 30,000-foot flyover of the Bible, looking at text after text after text after text, and I won't go on, but I could, about the sovereignty of God beginning in Genesis, that he is the king. So if you need a synonym for sovereign, he is the king. There are many kings, but he is the king. He is the sovereign. Sometimes people used to speak in those terms. Maybe they even do. In some cultures, when they meet a king or a queen, they can appropriately say, yes, my sovereign. Um, Jaguar used to have a model called the sovereign uh, I don't think it got very good reports on Consumer Reports, so there is that. Um, but there is the sovereign, the king, the one who is free, the one who doesn't have to consult external sources as to what he should do. Uh, he has the power. He has the knowledge. And again, he has the freedom to act like God because he and he alone is God. The sovereignty of God should be music to our ears because it is our strength. So today we're not going to do the flyover version. We're looking a little bit closer and we're looking at 10 areas where we see God's sovereignty on display in the Bible. 10 areas where we see God's sovereignty on display in the Bible. Uh, I think the list could be infinite, uh, but we're just looking at 10 areas where we see it on display. We began doing this last week. We looked at the first three. And we'll move beyond that today. But just by way of review, we looked at the first demonstration of God's sovereignty. And it's the sovereignty of God in the physical world. In the physical world, we looked at Matthew five forty five. We looked at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, and other texts. Then we also, number two, the next area where God's sovereignty is demonstrated is in the angelic realm. We looked at Job chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1. Sovereign in the angelic realm, whether they be fallen or holy angels. Thirdly, next area we looked at last time, he's sovereign in the animal realm or in the animal kingdom, I suppose I should say in this case. uh, In the animal realm, we looked at Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Matthew chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, and other texts as well. New territory today. Number four. Number four is going to be he is sovereign in the area of national affairs, He is sovereign in the area of national affairs. We're going to look at a psalm and then Daniel. So if you want to turn to the psalms, psalms are easy to find because they're in the middle of the Bible, essentially. Uh, And if you find the book of psalms, you're ready to go. Um, Proverbs is to the right. But Psalm 47 and then Daniel chapter 2 are our key texts when it comes to sovereign in national affairs. We're not going to, but we could look at Habakkuk chapter 1. We could look at Isaiah chapter 40. Um, but we'll just look at these two texts. Sovereign and national affairs. Psalm 41, or excuse me, Psalm 47 says, For God, this is forty-seven-seven. Psalm 47.7, For God is the king, the sovereign is the idea, the sovereign of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And we're going to keep reading in just a second. But just for now, let's see that he's not only the king over the nation of Israel, though he's that. And the psalmist is a citizen of the nation of Israel. So he's praising God because he's his king. The psalmist confesses Yahweh, the one true living God, as his king. So he would acknowledge that. But he's saying far more. He is the sovereign. He's the king over all the earth. Even over those who don't confess him as their king, the psalmist says, he's their king. Now before we keep reading, I want you to see something very obvious. I don't want to insult your intelligence. He's praising God for his sovereignty. He's not saying, how dare you, God, act like God. He's not judging God. He's not criticizing God. He's praising God because God isn't like him. So many times we don't like God's sovereignty because we want to have God under control. And we don't praise him. We criticize him or we question him. What's fascinating in the psalm is he's praising God for his sovereignty. And I do want you to know the psalmist sometimes questions God. But not questioning his sovereignty, but he has questions because he's not sovereign. How long, oh Lord, are you going to do this? It's the right kind of questioning, right? Why? It's the right kind of questioning. Because he's acknowledging someone is greater and different than him. He's, he's sovereign. It's okay to ask questions. But it's different than questioning God as in sitting in judgment over God. We don't know exactly how it all works. We don't know exactly why God is doing what he's doing at different times. The psalmist asks questions, but the psalmist praises God because he's sovereign. Now, let's keep reading, if you would. It says in verse 8, God reigns. That's another sovereignty kind of designation. That's what kings do. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. Not only does he reign over Israel, and, and it looks like he's reigning over Israel, at least by their profession, maybe not always by their actions, if you want to read their history, but, but they would say, Yahweh is our God, he's the one true God, he is our king, praise be to him. But the psalmist goes beyond that, he's also the one who reigns over the nations, which is fascinating because it might not look like it when you look with the naked eye. In fact, it wouldn't look like he reigns over the nations. But the psalmist isn't an atheist. <laughs> the psalmist understands the sovereignty of God to the degree that he knows, even if it doesn't look like it at the time, he reigns over the nations, even those who would not acknowledge his sovereignty. His Throne. He sits on his holy throne. Many thrones on earth at different times and in different places, different rulers and those in authority. But our God, the psalmist says, is different. His throne is holy. It's different. It's distinct. We would see elsewhere, as we've seen, it's in the heavens. It's above all of them. It's good. It's great stuff to think about even. God being sovereign over the nations, even if they don't acknowledge Him as such. Psalm chapter 2 would talk about this very sort of thing, and God won't be mocked by it. Now, the one you've been waiting for, Daniel chapter 2, it's the go-to text when it comes to God being sovereign over the nations. And as you find Daniel 2, we're going to rudely interrupt the context. Um, Sorry, we're going to do it time and time again. I think you earn the right to preach topical sermons um, in this sense. You look at the context, you study the context, you understand. And now that you understand, we're not just proof texting. We're not just finding Bible verses that seem to fit our agenda. Uh, but I do want you to know this. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel also is praising God, not questioning God in a I'm judging you sense. Daniel is acknowledging the grandeur and greatness of God as he says these things. Daniel 2, verse 21. He, God, Daniel says, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And we'll stop there for our purposes right now. Let's offer some pushback to that. As far as the human eye can see, that's not the way you get a new king. That's not the way you get rid of an old king. The way you get rid of an old king and get a new king is because there's war. It's because there are battles. It's because there's conspiracy. It's because someone's a traitor. It's because of all sorts of different things. Because so-and-so's army is bigger than somebody else's army. Or because of all, um, all a myriad of different reasons. Countless reasons. So many different reasons, but there's a war, there's a battle, this king is conquered, his kingdom is overtaken, and there's a new king in town. And there are going to be new policies, and there's going to be new rules, and it's going to be a different season. I would interpret it that way in light of what he says. He says he changes times and seasons. If we're living under a certain reign, a certain sovereign's reign, and now uh, we're conquered and now we have a new sovereign, we'd say, you know what, We, we, we like it better now. This is a better season. Or we might say, you know what? We like the good old days. We like the the, the other seasons better. But whether you take it that way or not, make no mistake about it. He removes kings and he sets up kings. It doesn't mean he doesn't do so through battles and wars and all of those other things we were talking about. But see, Daniel is somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God. So he knows there's a thing behind the thing. And the thing behind the thing is not a thing. The thing behind the thing is a sovereign God. Right? So there might be battles and there might be wars. And there might be all sorts of different things happening that the eye can see. But you know what? God is the one who brings down kings. And God is the one who raises up kings. God changes the seasons. It's fascinating. It's more than fascinating. It's important that we would know this. maybe to point out the obvious, but sometimes, sometimes that's necessary. please don't think that this is how it is when there are good kings and only when there are good kings. don't 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 don't, um, don't do that. Nebuchadnezzar is the king in view here. And then think about all the other kings. It's not like, oh, you know what? Here's what God did. He took the bad king and got rid of him, and now we have a good king. Sometimes it's that way. But sometimes it's the other way. Read the Old Testament's history, the history of Israel. Read the history of the nations. Sometimes God uses the really bad king to bring the discipline, to bring judgment. God works in mysterious ways. The point is, all, is this. God's the one who's behind it. The thing behind the thing is not a thing. But there is a thing behind the thing that's not a thing. We see things happening on a certain level, but you have to know that God is sovereign and God is orchestrating. And it's not just left a random chance, chance or bad luck. What might this have to do with us? The sovereign God is in charge. Orchestrating in control. Doesn't mean he doesn't hold people morally accountable like Nebuchadnezzar. They're morally accountable for their actions. Good or bad. But God is sovereign. And this is why Christians now for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. years Have gone to a text like this. It's the classic text to say. The people who are in charge didn't just get there by bad luck or good luck or just because of your vote or lack of vote. Doesn't mean we're not responsible. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be motivated to do things because God uses people who do things to accomplish certain things. But it does mean it can help you with your anxieties. Doesn't mean it answers all your questions. I have a lot of questions. We're going to talk more about this, not this week, but next week, Lord willing. Somebody said to me this morning, uh, a friend, she said, you're not going to tell me this morning that I shouldn't be involved in politics, are you? And I said, I don't know what I'm going to tell you. I haven't thought it through yet. It's the first sermon. (laughs) Then I laughed and I said, I most certainly won't tell you that. In fact, I'm saving that sort of thing for a different Sunday. But I said, by way of preview, you're mandated To love your neighbor. And my love for neighbor compels me to be involved in politics. But we'll talk about that at a different time. Okay? God uses means. But there is a God who's behind all of the outcomes. And sometimes it's to discipline his people. Sometimes it's to bless his people. Sometimes it's to bring judgment we don't always know. But make no mistake about it. I might lose sleep, to be honest, over such matters. But I'm not going to lose as much sleep as I could otherwise. <laughs> because there is a sovereign God and he's the one who changes the seasons. And he's the one who raises them up and he's the one who brings them down. I might not know why. I might not know where it's going in the short run, but I know where it's going in the long run. And until the king of kings and lord of lords returns, it's going to be a mixed bag. Hope that helps. We'll talk more about it in the days ahead, but let's just keep that in mind for now. God is sovereign even in these things. Morally accountable, those who lead, yes, absolutely. Culpable, yes, absolutely. Those who are involved in getting them there through all sorts of different means, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But God is sovereign. I want to say more about it, but let's go to number five. Let's do the next one, the next area. Um, we're going to get, by the way, we're going to get to nine of eight and a half of these. We'll start number nine, okay? Because that's how far we got in the first hour. And the first hour is sovereign. <laughs> Lowercase s. <laughs> Okay, whatever happens in first hour is what we try to do in all the hours. So because that happened there, I'll do my best to get us through, uh, starting point number nine today, the areas of God's sovereignty. Let's go to number five. He's sovereign in human affairs. He's sovereign in human affairs. I'm going to reference James chapter four, verse 15, and also Proverbs 16, verse nine, sovereign in human affairs. Just to get you ramped up for James chapter four, the context is we have many plans and we want to do this and we want to do that. And we think about tomorrow and we think about next week and we think about next year. You might think about when you're going to retire. If you're able to retire, you might think about about seeking further education. You might want to get married. You might want to stay single. You might want to have children. You might want to live long enough to see your grandchildren. All the list, all the things we plan. Because God made us lowercase s, sovereigns, because we're made in His image. So we plan, we purpose. Okay? And James chapter 4 says, familiar words, verse 15, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What is that? It's an acknowledgement of a sovereign who's more sovereign than you are. An ultimate sovereign. We make plans. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do certain things. It's a good acknowledgement. I'm not a legalist about this. Um. Maybe you would like me to be, but I'm not going to scold you if you say, here's what I'm going to do today, and if you don't say, Lord willing, um, but I would encourage you as a Christian pastor speaking to Christians, it should reflect our hearts. Lord willing, this will happen. Um, Someone said to me last week, uh, a friend said, you know what we're going to do right now is after one of the services, we are going to go to this restaurant, and we most certainly, and nothing's going to stop us, we're going to eat our lunch there today like wisecrack. <laughs> right? The point was, he knew where I was going in all this. He's not sovereign. God and God alone is sovereign. We do make plans. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign. Now, Proverbs 16 is also helpful. We're going to look, look at Proverbs 16 for a couple of these so it's, it's worth your money if you will. Proverbs 16, 9 says, and I have a question for you so I hope you're going to pay Close attention. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way. Let's stop there momentarily. The heart of man plans his way. Is that a good idea? I think that's a good idea. The Proverbs would commend you for planning. The Proverbs would scold you for not planning. It's good to save your money because you might need money tomorrow. Right? It's that idea. So there's, there's wisdom involved in planning. Planning is commended. He's not scolding people for planning. But then we keep reading and it says after the comma, but the Lord establishes his steps. Hmm. But our planning is limited because we're not all-knowing, all-powerful. We're not sovereign. So we make plans. Plans are good. But there is this Lord-willing kind of attitude Because there's really only one ultimate sovereign. And we should acknowledge the one and only sovereign as we think about what's going to happen in the future. Lord willing, it'll happen. Lord willing, it'll happen. Do you think that way? It's good to think that way. Who's expecting to get in a radical car accident on their way somewhere? Nobody, unless they planned it. Lord willing, this is what we'll do. It's really healthy to at least think in these terms. Lord willing, this is what will happen. Acknowledging the sovereignty of God, it's worshipful, it brings perspective, it's humbling. This is what we'll do. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to number six, a sixth area where we see God's sovereignty displayed, and that would be in coincidental, I'm putting that in quotes, in coincidental happenings. In coincidental happenings. If you're still in Proverbs 16, we'll just go ahead and see it there. We could look at Jonah chapter one, but we won't for this morning's sake. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. What else should I say about that? It's pretty stark and it's pretty clear. We could talk about randomness. We could talk about chance. We could talk about probability. We could talk about all kinds of things that are significant things. But there's a thing behind the thing that's not a thing. And God knows the details of everything. In fact, it doesn't even say that. It's every decision the the writer of Proverbs says is from the Lord. Hmm. That's the kind of thing that makes my mind spin and pause and ponder. Maybe it causes your mind to do the same. Good luck with that. See what I did there? Some of you did. Some of you didn't. My son said to me yesterday, Dad, how do you come up with these things? Is it just like being a dad or something? I said, I think it's just like being a dad or something. Okay, let's move to number seven. Number seven, another area where God's sovereignty is displayed is in his amazing care for his children. His amazing care for his children. And we're going to look at Romans 8 for this. And we'll be in Romans 8 a couple of different times this morning, so it would be a good text to go to. As you're finding Romans 8, I'll confess to you, it really bothers me when Christians don't believe in the sovereignty of God. It really bothers me because I think the Bible teaches he's sovereign. Um, It really bothers me because... Maybe I'm just sinful and I like to be right, and so I want to argue about it. It really bothers me because if God is sovereign, He is the king who's in charge and has a decree and is free to act however he wants, I think everybody should believe that because he's worthy of our praise and acknowledgement because he's worthy of our praise and acknowledgement if he's that kind of God. But where I'm going right now is it really bothers me that people don't believe in God's sovereignty because it is so helpful and so stabilizing and so anxiety-helping when it comes to maneuvering all of the complexities and difficulties of life. Um, you're getting robbed if you're being shepherded by someone who doesn't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. It's, it's abusive, And so I'm going to do my best to be a good shepherd under Christ, ultimate shepherding, and say, you got to believe in sovereignty because it's going to help you get through and maneuver good times and bad times. Romans 8.28 is the text. I know it's over quoted. I know it's quoted to you sometimes when it's not what you wanted to hear. I'll try my best as a pastor to not tell it to you when you don't want to hear it. But I'm going to tell you now in hopes that I don't have to tell you later because you'll know it. Okay? Romans 8.28 is the text and it's got sovereignty written all over it. How about we read it together? Maybe tr- pretend as if you've never read it before. And we know, we who are new Christians, relatively speaking, not we who are seminary graduates believe in the sovereignty of God. No, he's writing to the saints at Rome they are relatively new Christians. And he can assume that relatively new Christians believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. Oh, may it be so in our midst. And we know that for those who love God, shorthand for those who are Christians in the context of Romans 8, all things work together for good. Sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. For those who are called according to His purpose. According to His purpose, that's sovereignty as well. But for right now, I I want you to dwell on all things work together for good the all things we would know based upon the greater context of Romans 8 would include good things, right? And what other kind of things? Bad things. Remember, he talks about death. He talks about suffering. He talks about persecution. He talks about oppression. All things, right? You know know the text, he goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such a great text. Such a great text. I can say it that fast. (laughs) All things work together for good in those people's lives. Let me point out the obvious. That can't be true if God is not sovereign. He'll either lack the power, the wisdom, the plan, he'll lack something. Can't be true if God isn't sovereign. But if God is sovereign with a plan, a purpose, wisdom, power, a unique sovereign love for those who belong to him, it is true. All things. That doesn't mean all things are good. It doesn't say that. (laughs) It doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good. And so if you're doing something bad, don't say, well, you know, Romans 8. No, it's not teaching that. If you're doing something bad, stop. Read Romans 12 and following. He talks about things that are good and things that are bad. If something's being done to you that's bad, do what you can to have that stop. And ask for help. All things are not good. That's not what the sovereignty of God teaches. It's not what Romans 8 teaches. Not all things are good, but God causes all things to work together for the good, of those who belong to him. That's meant to help you with your worries. It's meant to help us with our anxieties. We're not glorified. We're not perfected. But boy that could help us. Oh. And it doesn't mean it's not a mystery to us. It doesn't mean we don't join the psalmist saying. How long is this going to go on? It doesn't mean we don't say. Why? But what we can say is. God's using it. Maybe after the fact, we can look back and say, now I see how. Maybe not. But we can have confidence that God is in charge and God is working, even through sinful human people, somehow for the good of those who belong to him. It absolutely is amazing, the reality of Romans 8, chapter 28. I'm super hesitant to quote it to people just because when people are hurting, sometimes they probably don't need a sermon. So I figure out different ways of saying it. But I'm definitely saying it. Okay, let's move on to number eight on our list of ways that we see God being sovereign, demonstrations of sovereignty. And that is number eight in sinful human acts. In sinful human acts. We see him being sovereign. I'm not saying God is sinful. I'm not saying God is the author of sin. We're going to talk about that on a different Sunday, Lord willing. But I am saying he is sovereign in sinful human acts. Genesis chapter 45, Genesis 50, and then Acts 2 and then Acts 4. So if you want to find Genesis 45, we'll see this on display. As you're turning to Genesis 45, I'll I'll ask you to think about the greatest atrocity, the greatest act of evil, the most sinister, awful, sinful thing that's ever been done on planet Earth. What might that be? Terrible things were done under Mao. Terrible things were done. Nazi Germany. I'm reading a three-volume history of Stalin. Terrible things were done under his regime. And the list goes on of terrible things. And then there's all the terrible things that aren't so famous. Terrible thing after terrible thing after terrible thing. What's the most... most Terrible, heinous, sinful thing ever. We'll get to that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. But for now, Genesis chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So I'll put my finger there just for a moment and say, good or bad? It's a duh question, right? Is it good or bad that your brothers would sell you into slavery? Bad, right? No-brainer. Awful. Can you imagine? I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Good or bad. Good. Absolutely, they knew that was good, to preserve life. Two things are happening here in different ways, in different senses. Verse 6 says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you. God sent me before you. To preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. Wait a second. Yes, it was. If you're talking about the thing, but the thing behind the thing that's not the thing, we can say what what he says is right. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I remember reading that for the first time. I don't know where I was. I don't even know when it was, but it was like shock. Like, se- seriously? That is so clear. Where, where, where's that been my whole life growing up in church? I mean, maybe it was read to me. Maybe I was encouraged to read it. Uh, I'll claim culpability for my sinful actions, but maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But here, here we have both things sinful human acts by sinful human beings acting according to their sinful nature. And there's something behind it all. And God is using sinful human beings who want to act sinfully according to their sinful nature to accomplish something greater, preserving life. And we all know as Christians, this is actually causing us to think In grander terms, you have the the Jewish people preserved, so there is actually going to be a line. This actually needs to happen in light of Genesis chapter 3, but maybe we talk about that at a different time. Amazing. It's right there. Good theology in the Bible. Imagine that. (laughs) It's right there. It answers so many questions. Genesis 50, if we want to go ahead and turn there, I don't know how many times I've underlined Genesis 50 verse 20 in different Bibles I've had because I don't have a great memory and I always want to make sure I can find this text because it's so, it's such a good way of encapsulating the whole Joseph story. Genesis 50 verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. What's the it referred to? The evil. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Great stuff. Worst act ever in human history, the most sinful act ever in human history. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. And notice how it happens. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, delivered up, not in a good sense. Crucified, to be crucified. This is Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan, that's sovereignty talk, and foreknowledge of God, sovereignty talk, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. But for now, notice, plan, purpose of God, sinful agents, Caring about evil actions, the most evil action ever, to crucify the Lord of glory, the one who came here and did everything right, who proved again and again and again, as we're seeing in our study of Matthew's gospel account, to be the one who should be worshipped. Instead, they crucify him. There is nothing grander when it comes to heinousness or evil or sin according to the definite plan and purpose of God. Lest you think that Peter goes on to say, sovereignty of God, so you know what? You guys actually did the right thing. No. They're culpable. They're responsible for their evil actions. And so he calls them to do what? He calls them to repent and to trust in Christ, the very one who they wanted crucified. Fascinating, these things we find in the Bible. Fascinating. And then in chapter 4, if chapter 2 isn't enough, chapter 4 says in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan, oh, there we go again, had predestined to take place. Wow. I don't know exactly how human responsibility, sinful human actors, exactly how God uses all of that to bring about His greater purposes, but I know that He does. I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of pages about it and I know it well enough based upon our texts and anything and everything I've read to say both things are true there is a sovereign God behind all of these sinful people doing what they want to do which is sinful and he uses it for the good of his people okay we need to look at one more of these at least begin one more of these and that's number nine Another area where we see God's sovereignty is his sovereignty in salvation. Number nine. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter one. And if there's time, we'll begin looking at Romans chapter eight. But we won't finish this, certainly. This is where Ephesians one is the first text. This is where things get really controversial. Okay? This is where Pastor Mike Holloway, Pastor Mike Holloway is our our elder statesman um, staff person. He's been around a long time. He's got a lot of wisdom. Uh, When church services start getting full, he says, Pat, you probably should preach on the sovereignty of God. (laughs) Or he'll say, Pat, you probably should preach on predestination and election. We need seats in the auditorium. (laughs) And we laugh, and he laughs, and you laugh, but it's really kind of sick. But the reality is, say the P word, predestination, and people run for the doors, if not literally, figuratively. And it ought not be that way, um, because the Bible says predestined. We actually just read it in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. So when Christians say, well, I don't believe in predestination, I say, do you believe the Bible is true? They say, yes. Well, of course you believe it's true because it's in the Bible. Now, we may have differences over what we mean by it, but everyone who believes the Bible is true believes in predestination. But see, now we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Now we're talking about the sovereignty of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, just to get us started for next time, if you will. It says in verse 11, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, that's already talking about sovereignty. If we read it in in light of the other texts of Scripture. In Him, we have, in Jesus, in Christ, we have, in Him, we have obtained an inheritance sovereignty because we we can't get an inheritance apart from him we can't inherit eternal life apart from him we can't inherit eternal life if we're united to buddha by faith or if we're united to someone else by faith or if we're alone by our good works by faith in ourselves in him we have an an inheritance that already speaks of sovereignty God didn't say, well, let's find out what the third service at Omaha Bible Church on Sunday would like to do when it comes to um, different ways of salvation. Uh, should it be through many roads lead to heaven? Um, should it be through my son plus other ways? Or should it be exclusively and only through my one and only son? He didn't say, wonder what the third service at OBC is going to say. He didn't consult anybody. He's sovereign. He's free. He's free. And he has chosen to love the world in a particular way. In him, we have an inheritance that already speaks of sovereignty. And I'll admit to you, I'm reading that in light of all of Ephesians, in light of all the Old Testament, in light of all the New Testament. But it's in him and only in him. Acts chapter 4. Sovereign. It's how he chose to do it. He's free to do it. It makes us uncomfortable because I like me some sovereignty. I kind of wanted to have a vote. Because I might do things differently. I like to say to people, if you want to do it differently, once you create your own planet and you create your own rules, then you'll have the freedom to do that. But that sounds like Mormonism, and I wouldn't encourage anyone to be a Mormon. I digress. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined. According to the purpose of Him. Purpose of Him. That's decree talk. Sovereignty talk. According to the purpose of Him who works all things. According to the counsel of His will. Sovereignty talk. Everything that ever happens. All things happen according to the counsel of His will. Nothing happens outside of the counsel of the sovereign's will. The inheritance is within that framework. And God has chosen to predestine. That's how He does it. Paul doesn't say, how dare he do that? Actually, what he does is he falls over himself beginning at the beginning of the chapter. I think it's in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on and on and on. It's awesome. He's praising God for this, not saying, how dare you? It doesn't mean he doesn't have any questions. It doesn't mean there isn't mystery involved as to how God does what he does. But he praises him. And I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing. Even with questions. Even with questions. (laughs) To point out the obvious, again, predestined. So, destination, predetermined. So there is a destination. You're going to obtain the inheritance in Christ, eternal life. And that's predetermined. For that to happen, you have to have a God who's not lowercase s sovereign, uppercase s sovereign in control, in charge of all the factors. Last night at our house, we were trying to plan a summer vacation. I say trying. So we we had Airbnb, you know, on all mobile devices and we're checking this place out. But you can't go here because of COVID already proof we're not sovereign because I can't go where I want to go. But when we do make our plan, we'll reserve the Airbnb and, and we'll put gas in the Honda and we'll get all the snacks and pack up all the, you know, you know, we do for vacation. And we'll have a destination predetermined. We won't just drive around. That might be fun, but we won't do that. At least we've never done it that way before. And we're, we're going to drive to Durango, Colorado. That was one of the options people were voting for. We predestined Durango, Colorado to be where we'll have our vacation but I can't predestine it the way God can. I'm lowercase s sovereign, made in God's image, a planner. But what if we're taken out by a semi? What if I don't live long enough to see July? What if we get sued by someone for who knows what and we lose all our money? And the list could go on and on and on and on. You get the idea. Only God who's sovereign can actually, truly predestined to the point of saying, having obtained an inheritance. And he speaks of it irrevocably. Sovereign in salvation. But that makes some of us uncomfortable. Okay, we need to end on this note. But I'm going to give you a little more controversy because I want to poke and prod in your minds a little bit. Because I want you to believe in God's sovereignty, even if it's risky. God's freedom to do what he wants to do. Based upon what we know from the Bible, um, that everyone is sinful apart from Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. If God chose to save no one and damn everyone, would He be just? He would be just. He'd be giving people what they deserve. That rattles some people's cages, but enough of you know enough to go, of course. Now let's... Now, let's move it forward a little bit. And and he would be acting according to not something other people made him do. Uh, He's acting according to his law, which is from him. Anyway, just being careful. Now, here's where it gets a little trickier. What if God chose to predestine one person? Let's call him Pat. (laughs) Pat. I'm kidding. (laughs) Let's call him Judas because we know it's not true. But I digress. What if he chose to to predestine and save, send his son to be the perfect propitiation for his sins and, and do everything necessary and he chose to save one? Would he be gracious? He would be gracious. Would it be good? It would be good. Would he have the freedom to do that? He's God. He's God. Now, we all know that the Bible teaches He saves countless millions, countless to us, more than we can count or see. From every tribe, tongue, people, nation, the Bible puts a huge emphasis on that and we're thankful for that. But I at least wanted to meddle with your mind enough to kind of question you to say, do you really believe in God's sovereignty? That He's not looking for a vote from us as to how He should do it? I hope so. I realize it's unsettling. But why would we worship a God who's just like us? Or who would do whatever we would want Him to do? Wouldn't make a lot of sense. Wouldn't make a lot of sense. Okay, next week we're going to finish this up Lord willing, because I'm not sovereign. And we'll also entertain some questions about, like, then why do evangelism? And there's an answer. And why pray? And there's an answer. And is God the author of sin? No, but there's an answer. We'll talk about that. And we might take a closer look at Habakkuk because it's such an interesting text when it comes to all of this. But let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church and all churches around the world that are committed to proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ. We certainly need it. Thank you for the fact that you're patient with us. Thank you that you don't hold our trespasses against us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage your people, please, today. In Jesus' name, amen.